Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The private credit market's now multi-trillion dollar market. It's too big to ignore. Right now, banks are operating with far more reserves than they'll ever need. We may not get a economic recession. We might get a financial market recession. There had to be a better way. It's critically important what's happening with the jewelry market for gold. Unemployment is a record low. The timing is just perfect. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. In the immortal words of Monty Python, and now for something completely different. Today, we're going to talk about fraud and how you catch it using very advanced high-tech software. And we're joined today by Todd McDonald and Chris McCall from Validate, spelled with an eight. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be with you. It's great to have you both here. We came together by way of a friendship. And so I don't know a whole lot about this topic, but I'm dying to know how you guys got into this business and what was the catalyst? What's the backstory on Validate? Todd, why don't you take it? Perfect. Well, yeah, it really is. Our background really came out of a fraud investigation the idea for what we built at Validate came out of a Ponzi scheme. In fact, one of the country's largest Ponzi schemes, it was called the Meridian Meridian Funds out of Seattle, Washington, where I call home. In that case, I was working with the bankruptcy trustee. It was a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which normally go through a restructuring evaluation, often emerge successfully as a restructured company on the back end. We walked into a series of investment management funds with a real estate bent that had filed for bankruptcy protection, expecting there to be some overhead to cut, some profitable versus unprofitable lines of business to evaluate kind of normal bankruptcy trustee stuff. That quickly changed a couple days into the case when I was sitting reviewing the detailed balance sheet with the owner and CEO of the funds, where he just outright admitted half of the assets on the $200 million balance sheet didn't exist and never existed. In this case, it was virtually all mortgages receivable on the asset side and investor notes payable on the liability side. That's astonishing. He just flat said, those are actually, they don't exist. Yeah, I basically had a detailed listing of the assets and said, look, if there's a compromised asset, let's just talk about it. Maybe there was double pledging of collateral or or something like that. So I was expecting there to be some stories and some assets that were substantially less than their book value. I wasn't expecting him to say half of the assets didn't exist and never existed. Wow. And so, okay, then what happens? Well, that changes the nature of, of a trusteeship pretty dramatically. I immediately let our legal finance and fiduciary team know of the conversation. There was some disbelief initially. Shortly thereafter, FBI, DOJ were were contacted from a prosecution standpoint. And well, it kicked off a whole series of events. One of the most substantive ones, just from a trustee standpoint, a bankruptcy trustee, for those that aren't intimately involved with that, Their exclusive job is to, number one, follow the rules of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, and number two, maximize recovery for the benefits of creditors. Get as much money back for whoever the creditors are. In this case, it was uh, mom-and-pop investors and some commercial investors. 
who were left holding the bag on a couple hundred million dollars. For us, we needed to be able to craft a strategy for recovery. How are we going to get as much money back for our constituents, the creditors? In order to do that, we had to really understand what the fact pattern was. And the fact pattern, the best thing that we could identify was bank statement activity. The books and records, normally you'd go to a run some P&Ls, some balance sheet, figure out where things went wrong, where the company started losing money. In this case, it was a fraud from day one. The only thing we could rely on was independently sourced bank statements through subpoena. We couldn't rely on the internal books and records, totally beyond repair, malevolently manipulated. We couldn't rely on the audited financial statements. There was actually audits done that showed a profitable and solvent group of companies when it was anything but. We couldn't rely on that to get our bearings. And so the only thing that we could do to recreate to the best of our ability that the what happened over the 12-year life of the funds was taking transactions directly from bank statements. That's amazing. I'm just amazed at that. Okay, so I like at the risk of just sounding just plain old stupid, continue. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'd started my career in public accounting as an auditor with one of the big four firms. I moved over into technology firms and operational financial ro- roles. Chris and I met 20 years ago at a streaming media startup. Chris was a product guy. I was a corporate controller. Then evolved into maybe devolved into bankruptcy restructuring, out-of-court workouts, kind of special operations scenarios. And in that, with this huge amount of work that had to be done, we ended up with tens of thousands of pages of bank statements, 50 accounts, 20 different legal entities, going back about 12 years in total. There's this huge body of work to just get, bank statements don't mean anything. You have to extract information out of it. You have to make sure that that data is correct. It's accurate. There's nothing missing. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing duplicate. And I really scoured the landscape from a technology standpoint, figuring there must be some tools for investigators out there in these kind of follow the money situations and really came up short in terms of what I was looking for. That led us to putting together a team, assembling a team in India, helping to manually transcribe those transactions into Excel workbooks. There was a bunch of pluses. There was a bunch of minuses associated with that. But there was an incredible amount of QA work that had to be done on the on the back end of that. Stuart, there was also FBI and DOJ doing the exact same thing in parallel and not, not sharing their information with us. It's kind of a one-way share when you're working with federal agencies and investigators. You provide them with any relevant information that you have. They don't really provide anything to you. So not only was there this huge administrative exercise, it was uh, duplicated for different constituents, prosecution versus the trustee and bankruptcy process. Very cool. So Chris, then what's the next step here? You and you and Chris get together and you begin to build these tools into what is now validate. Yeah, it's it kind of went like that. We've known each other for a while, so we started talking back and forth. Todd said, hey, I was just on this case. There should be software that does this. I come from, I'm not an accountant. I come from enterprise data center technology. Think network data storage and networking and those sorts of things. And at first, I'm like, oh, you know, 
I don't know about this, Todd, you know, how many Ponzi schemes are out there? It seems pretty focused and pretty niche, but we kept talking about it, you know, year on year. And what we started to realize, what I started to realize is, you know, not being a coming from the professional space, I started realizing that the data requirements for a professional, like a CPA or an attorney or even a government investigator that's that's going into this, the data requirements are very different. You have to be very precise about the data that you're getting, who are you getting it from, and how do you prove that it's accurate? And that's when it got really interesting, because if you think about it in that context, any situation, whether it's a fraud investigation, whether it's an audit, whether it's a, a tax analysis or opinion, whether it's merger or acquisition or a hardcore white collar crime investigation, high net worth divorce, all of those situations where there's complex discovery, you need data that you can rely on in a court of law. And when we recognize the scope that it's way beyond just Ponzi, it's just anything where a professional is providing an opinion based on this financial discovery, you need these data algorithms and this prep automation cleanup. And that's when the light bulb went on. We got, you know, that's a huge market out there. If you think about the number of audits that go on, the number of M&A diligence, you know, quality of earnings, the number of tax cases that are being prosecuted. I mean, it just, the, the scope is, gets really big, really fast. And that's where we said, okay, what's really needed out there is a software platform that's designed specifically for professionals that delivers verified financial intelligence. And that's essentially what we built and what Validate is. It's a platform for these professionals to go collect and aggregate lots of different sources of financial evidence. And then we have software and algorithms that puts it all together in a transaction database with visualizations and matching algorithms and all kinds of stuff so that you can understand what's happening And you can rely on the output in a court of law. And that's essentially what Validate is. And when you say you can visualize it, you can literally see, follow the money, right? It's visible. Yeah. Let me give another example just out of that Ponzi case. So once you get all the bank statement transactions, there's a whole bunch of additional work that you have to do, just general QA of the data. You're also starting to label, here's investor money coming in, here's you know, bad guy did normal Ponzi things, bought two jets, two yachts, four homes. We were needing to trace where the funds came from to purchase each one of those assets. Of course, it was an investor money coming in, getting laundered through a half dozen accounts, going to the bad guy's account, and then the funds were getting wired out from there. That was taking, using traditional methods without software, each one of those was taking, once you already had the data, once you've already QA'd the data, just going through and running the individual tracing on those was taking two to three days to put together the complete package to effectively go file the motion that our investors, the estate's investors were entitled to the proceeds of the liquidation of each one of those assets. The idea that Chris and I had is, well, one, be able to pull in large, vast volumes of financial data be able to QA it, and then be able to quickly analyze and interpret it. And so that was really a a connection point. And that analysis is such a critical phase. Just as an example, in the Ponzi case, we use that database to verify creditors' claims. So lots of people said, hey, I'm owed money. Here's backup showing my investment. We had to vet all of those. If there's a net winner, what's called a net winner in a Ponzi case, 
somebody who made an investment got out with a profit. You can't do that. And so the trustee came after and clawed back what the net winners, the net investment positive situations. We identified flows of funds, movement of money between 20 different related entities, which was critical. We identified assets like I just identified and recipients of money with no legitimate business interest had to go chase after them. FBI, DOJ's database, they were using the same thing, but for prosecution and ultimately a restitution calculation at sentencing or, or immediately after sentencing. So lots of different uses for how the bank data gets used and ultimately capitalized upon. But the tools that exist just weren't there. Visualization, as you and Chris were talking about, is a big part of accelerating intelligence from a data set, from a particular case, and ultimately leading towards strategy and execution on that. So who are your major clients? Yeah, it's, you know, they fall into kind of three main buckets. They'll be like directly to, to law firms, specifically the cases where complex financial discovery is required. So high net worth divorce, corporate bankruptcy, financial litigation, fraud investigations and prosecutions, those sorts of things, uh, white collar crime. We also sell to accountants, specifically CPA firms, primarily to the forensic and valuation practice, but we also have solutions to help do full population testing and audits. That same technology can be used in M&A, so into the advisory practice. We also do several like complex tax cases as well, where the accountants are going through proving income and those sorts of things. So basically any, any practice area in a CPA firm. And then the third kind of key customer is going to be the government agencies. So federal, state, and local, we've got all flavors from major metro police departments up to state AG offices to federal agencies. And it's all about white collar crime, government prosecutions of of fraud, essentially. So in that case, it's, you know, less CPAs, more just hardcore analysts and forensic accountants that are on staff at those agencies. That's very interesting. And Todd, right before we hopped on here, you'd mentioned that a very large recovery tied you back to the insurance industry. Is that the Ponzi scheme that you're talking about now? Yeah, that's right. So I mentioned that, you know, one of the things that we couldn't rely on as the trustee to get our bearings in terms of what historically was happened. One of the things we couldn't rely on was the audited financial statements. The fraudster in this case was able to get a number of clean audit opinions, audited financial statements through a well-reputed strong firm who just frankly screwed up multiple times. As we, again, with the trustee's focus on recovery, we looked at where was their opportunity for recovery, not just physical assets, liquidation thereof, et cetera, but who else was culpable in this? There was litigation against banks where this guy had all of his money, 50 accounts, money flowing directly through, you know, lots of transfers, lots of insufficient funds that were going through. There obviously wasn't robust know your customer diligence done. There was also litigation against the auditors. And obviously, when you're suing banks and you're suing auditors, you're suing their professional liability insurance companies. 
And so we had a couple years of, of litigation, ultimately an out-of-court settlement for the audits that were failed, the beneficiaries obviously being the, the creditors in this case. But there was a lot of exposure for that firm. The initial litigation was well above insurance limits. And ultimately, the settlement that was in place was below those limits, but it was a very material amount of pain and payout from the insurance community. So as Chris and I started thinking about other areas of applicability, auditors, where I started my career, auditors still use statistical sampling. So when they're looking at financial statements, they're breaking those financial statements down to accounts, they're sampling transactions out of those accounts and then projecting the results of those samples onto the whole population of the accounts and therefore the financial statements. That's been the state of the art since 1934. So, you know, right now we're at the 90, 90 year anniversary of statistical sampling for auditing financial statements. We believe that bank evidence is a vastly underutilized part of audit underwriting, ongoing monitoring, bank statements don't lie. And the vast majority of transactions that flow through an accounting system should be reflected in bank statement activity. When you send out an invoice, you should see a cash receipt. When you make payroll, you should see a cash disbursement. On and on and on. Millions of, you know, tens of thousands or millions of transactions over the course of a year, the vast majority of them being reflected in bank statement activity. And when you took a look at what actually happened in the fraud case, in the Ponzi case, from a financial standpoint versus what happened in the bank statements, they didn't match up. There was huge holes. And so we're going to be addressing the audit market and modernizing the tools and techniques to take into account big data, full population testing, back to bank statement and other evidence. That's really interesting. And I, I guess it gets me to this question. What is the state of fraud right now, given the current economy? And the genesis for the question really gets around. I hear, and I, I'm not alone here, I, there's reporting of theft in major cities that to the point where retailers are just walking away. Right. For some reason or the other, I don't know why, but post pandemic, it seems like folks think that taking things that doesn't belong to them is okay. And I'm wondering if I, if that is also the case in more sophisticated kinds of fraud. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to let Todd take this one. He's kind of the expert, but also, you know, in addition to like what's happening in a, a lot of the major metros, think about all the stimulus and all the, the funds that have been pumped into the economy, there is a certain level percentage there that was taken advantage of and has not been found or prosecuted yet. So there's just a ton of stuff that's out in the industry right now. And I think we're on the cusp of a, of a huge wave, tidal wave of investigations and clawbacks. And we just have, you know, it takes a while for that all stuff to set in. But Todd's got some great insight into this. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, fraud is always happening. But there are waves in terms of when there's more or less investigations, more or less bankruptcies that are going on. Those things are not the same, but but often related. 
typically it's about once every the economic cycles go once every seven years, typically five years of a growing economy, two years of a contracting economy. I'm not an economist, but that, that's in very rough terms. It's been, you know, now 14, 15 years since the last economic recovery, ignoring the kind of initial blip that we had at the onset of the pandemic. There has not been significant amounts of bankruptcies. There have not been a significant amount of large-scale investigations and, and frauds exposed. And I'm talking about like major headline cases like, like Madoff and the Meridian Ponzi scheme, the case that I've been talking about. Those things all kind of came in waves. And it's often when there's uh, illiquidity in the market, when interest rates rise, when it's more difficult to raise money from investors that's when the music stops and the investigations start. It's been an extremely long period of time since we've, by historical standards, since we've had our, our last correction. So we're starting to see cases like at the in Q4 of last year, FTX and some crypto cases make headlines. There's a bunch more that we expect will be forthcoming with the rising interest rates that we've seen in the last couple of quarters. It's definitely a much more challenging environment for anyone to be raising investment or debt debt funds regardless. And that's usually when the frauds start getting exposed. When we talked about this call earlier, that's what struck me was you said you need a dislocation and that will that will precipitate. I mean, I think the term you used was the tide going out, right? It's a term that I've heard Buffett use too. You can't tell who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And you're right. I mean, I, you haven't seen a big Madoff, you know, kind of, obviously the, you mentioned the FTX. I mean, that's, that's massive and there's, I think, more to come. But so what are the challenges to identifying and prosecuting fraud? Like what I'm hearing in this explanation is that there are a zillion transactions and that you need to be able to look at all of them which is currently, you have the technology to do that, but not everybody does, right? But as tools get better to investigate fraud, it stands to reason that we're going to discover more fraud, right? Yeah, I just say, you know, we've all been hearing a lot about big data over the last 10 years. Big data just means you've formerly had access to very limited amounts or the ability to, even if you had access to vast amounts of data um, that you didn't have the ability to, analyze and, and ingest that. Things are changing considerably, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence, new tools, machine learning, software like, like Validate, even going really far out there into quantum computing and, and so on. The ability to ingest large volumes of data, we are absolutely in, still in the early days of being able to do just that. What we've built specifically is focused on follow the money investigations, where there's a need to understand where did money come, where did it go, how did it get there, and to be able to do that in a matter of hours or days rather than months, quarters, or years for some of the bigger investigations. So I think it's just going to be a breathtakingly fascinating era that we're still on the early days of as AI, Chris and I have been paying attention to for quite a while on the periphery. I'm not a computer scientist, but certainly of, of great interest. That's been out there being discussed 
lots of publications, lots of books, lots of academic research, an amazing amount of investment, but not a lot of public awareness and PR until just first quarter of this year with ChatGPT. It's going to be an absolutely fascinating era. And so, I mean, our audience is, is overwhelmingly insurance, right? And one of the things I was going to ask Chris is, how does this technology help daylight insurance fraud more quickly in particular? Yeah, it just kind of goes to the the nature of fraud itself. Um, you know, a lot of people think of these complex schemes and really smart people doing algorithms and all this stuff. And if you get in a lot of these cases, you realize that what it really is, is somebody has access to a bank account and does something wrong, moves it where they shouldn't be moving. I mean, it's literally that simple. So what it really comes down to that, you know, back to your prior question, just before I get into this one, you know, just the challenge is just transparency. There is no transparency because the data is hard to access and put in a format where you can look and understand and, and see what's happened. Because of it's difficult to get and to see, there's opaqueness and people take advantage of that. And that's the kind of the key thing for kind of insurance fraud. You know, instead of just assuming a risk and then there will be a certain amount that's going to happen and being right or wrong. I mean, I see a world where insurance is going to want to, you know, monitor some of these assets that have a lot of cash flow going in and out and actually be looking at exactly what's happening. Today, that's just not possible. So it's, it's kind of like sampling, right? You, you don't have any tools. There's no way you can look at anything. So you sample. Well, what if you could look at everything and see everything and monitor everything? What does that do to the risk equation that reduces it tremendously? And then in, in terms of just like prosecuting the ongoing fraud, again, you know, in complex situations where there's lots of cash changing hands, and these are very specific situations, you know, this doesn't apply to all insurance fraud, but for those cases where it's cash intensive, lots of entities, lots of accounts, if there's suspicion, we can come in and really help daylight exactly what's happening very quickly without spending the millions of dollars of professional fees to you know, look through everything. And that's kind of where we play and tie into. We do have several very large insurance fraud cases that we're currently working on. And that's what it's about. It's it's very specific cases where there's lots of entities, lots of accounts, lots of money exchanging hands. And we can provide transparency into that and help get to the bottom of what's happening. What comes to mind for me is, is there a healthcare example that you've got that you can share with our with our listeners before we wrap? Yeah, there's a healthcare situation. There's a auto insurance situation. You know, it varies specifically, but, you know, in a lot of the cases are confidential and we can't talk about specifics. But again, I'll go back to the nature of the cases. There's a network of entities oh. that are, you know, and there's kickbacks involved and it gets pretty complex pretty fast. And it, it's cover several states. But the key thing is there's no way that a legal body or forensic accountant could assess everything and see everything without the help of a VFI platform like we provide. So the ability to quickly ingest, to tie everything together, to see the flow of funds in those situations where there's hundreds and even thousands of, of different entities, you know, that's that's kind of where we're being used in the insurance fraud space. At the end of the day, Stuart, fraudsters thrive in opacity. 
right? Daylight, insight, and transparency are the enemy from their standpoint, and they're the friend of insurers or anybody that wants to really get at what, what's happening. Thankfully, the tools, including what we've built for increasing that transparency, insight, timeliness at a reduced cost, we're entering an exciting new era. That's fantastic. I've got a quick question on the way out the door. I got two questions. One guy can take one, one can take the other one. So I'll start with you, Todd. The questions are, who would you most like to have lunch with, alive or dead, or best piece of advice you ever got? Most interesting person that I'd like to have lunch with, I'd modify that, the most interesting two people. I just cannot stop watching whenever I see Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on just the wisdom and knowledge that those two guys have and their long-term friendship and incredible performance and kind of collective insight and reliance on one another. I just find their friendship and their insight absolutely fascinating. And I think we've society's been lucky to have those two along for around for as long as we have. That's fantastic. Chris, you can have either question. Best piece of advice you ever got? Or who'd you like to most ha- like to have lunch with alive or dead? Yeah, I'm going to do the the best piece of advice. It goes back to my roots. I grew up in North Dakota and my grandfather used to tell me all the time, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's very similar to what we're doing at Validate. We show you exactly what's going on, but our professionals are actually deciding you know, what to use the data. It's just a, a good, humble understanding of you can only do so much, you can only get it to a certain state and then it's out of your control and you got to recognize that. That's fantastic. Great way to wrap. Thanks for being on. We've been joined by Todd McDonald and Chris McCall of Validate. Jess, thanks for being on with me. Thanks, yeah. Stuart. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Thank you.